guys welcome back to another episode of the just checking in podcast this podcast as always is brought to you by vents a place where everyone but especially men and boys can open up about their mental health issues break down stigmas and start conversations i am your host freddie cocker and i'm trialing this pod with my new sure mv7 mic so i'm very excited about this as you may know by now each pod i check in with a very special guest we have an atta and chat about all things mental health as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about if it helps that person with their mental health we discuss it I've checked in with Sinead Watson, who's a detransitioned woman from the UK. I wanted to get the perspective of a detransitioner from across the pond in the United States, where the situation is far more toxic and a million times more unregulated. This is largely due to the private healthcare system and the fragmented regulations surrounding gender dysphoric children and adults based on their state-based system. In this episode, I'm chatting to Helena, an American detransition woman who talks online about her experiences of gender dysphoria and her journey from transition to detransition. Helena said her mental health difficulties started before her gender dysphoria and her gender dysphoria and trans identity was derived from trauma largely associated with an eating disorder and weight issues which plagued her throughout her teenage years. Helena lived with bulimia at this time and started to become more certain she was trans, going on testosterone for 17 months starting in August 2016 until February 2018, which she started at 18 years old. She spent a lot of time on Tumblr, which she says indoctrinated her into what she described as gender ideology, and it took a long time for her to escape this, get her mental health into a healthy place, and embrace herself fully. What is going on in the American health system is absolutely crazy by what Helena said in this pod and I think people on both sides of this debate would agree that safeguarding and solid regulation should be implemented to make sure that these gender dysphoric kids make the right decisions for their mental health and long-term physical health. So this is how my conversation with Helena went. Helena, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you so much for letting me check in with you. It's been a while to get where we are today and I feel very blessed to be using my new podcast kit on your episode. So how are you, Power? How are you getting on? I'm good. I'm good. I woke up not very long ago. It's morning here for me. I know it's like 3 yeah, it's, p.m. Uh, for you, right? It's mid-afternoon here on the Saturday. So yeah, apologies uh, for disrupting your sleep schedule. We've got tons to talk about and I'm so thankful for you to share your story from a U.S. perspective on this toxic fractious conversation that we're probably about to have without further ado let's start the show let's start the pod by talking about your journey helena so i ask all my special guests this question first can you walk me through early life teenage years and looking back were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint who's the helena we meet here So to give just listeners a little bit of background, my story is that when I was about 15, I started identifying as trans and at 18, I actually was able to get on testosterone and I was on that for about a year and a half, at which point I detransitioned and now a few years later, that's where I am now. So like leading up to that, definitely I had been struggling with mental health issues pretty much since early childhood. It kind of started when I was about seven, when uh, my aunt, who actually did the majority of kind of like taking care of me, she left suddenly and she's Polish and my family is Polish um, and she returned to Poland. And I literally didn't see her for like 
10 years after that. So that was just like a very sudden, difficult thing for me. I didn't adjust to that very well because she was probably like my closest relationship. From that point on, I just like struggled a lot. And it got kind of like its worst when I was about 14. I was doing all your kind of like teenage (laughs) angsty depression stuff, like self-harm, eating disorder, all that kind of stuff. And so, yeah definitely was struggling before we talk about that eating disorder you mentioned helena a big reason for its origin or maybe development seems to be the relationship you had with one of your parents and they were a doctor and they owned their own weight loss clinic i believe what was your relationship like with them in relation to your mental health and this Mm -hmm. journey that you ended up going on My family in general, I would say, is very like abnormally focused on weight and physical appearance. My mom, yeah, she does own like a weight loss and beauty practice. It's called like a med spa. It's like when a physician does like beauty oriented procedures and stuff. So yeah, I definitely just grew up around a lot of that. I just feel like it's a pretty like toxic environment because just, you know, Growing up, just watching women like doing Botox and talking so negatively about their appearance. And then like my mom always dieting and just like becoming really familiar with dieting stuff like language and like how many calories are in like every single food on the planet by the time I was like in middle school. Yeah, that just kind of like set me up to have at one point, I believe you were doing Weight Watchers at 10. That sounds quite bonkers to me. How on earth did you handle that as a young girl? It was probably like 11 or 12. Weight Watchers was the first kind of like real diet that I did. And I remember it because like I was in middle school, like I remember being in the middle school cafeteria and I didn't know anything about nutrition like at all. I was completely clueless, obviously, because I was so young. I would spend 11 Weight Watchers points on like a Pop-Tart in the very morning. I think I had like 25 Weight Watchers points for the whole day. So like I would waste half of it on a Pop-Tart in the morning and then I wouldn't have many points like left over for the rest of the day. So then I would just like skip lunch. And then with that, like I would isolate myself. So I was able to like avoid buying food at the cafeteria. I would go and like sit in the bathroom or the library or something at lunch. And then like when I got home, that's when I would like spend the rest of my points. So Yeah, I distinctly remember that just really struggling with what kinds of foods to choose and feeling so nervous about eating like I was hungry, but I didn't want to like go over my allotment. And that was yeah, yeah, I really remember that being a big struggle for me. When you were in middle school, like you said, 13, 14, this had become an obsession pretty much. And like you said, you had restricted yourself with certain lunches or dinners or breakfast or wherever it was. And to add to this, I believe your mom was weighing you every week too. So how did that create an extra level of anxiety? Did you try and rebel against her? Or were you just concentrating on satisfying her and trying to satisfy this allotment in inverted commas you had in your head? I think my rebellion against her was me thinking I was trans. Like I think that was kind of like my rejection of her idea of womanhood. I feel like her idea of womanhood was dieting, weighing yourself, being obsessed with this kind of stuff. And like, when I decided I was going to be trans, I think that was my total rejection of all of that. So I do think that I rebelled in that sense. But before that, I didn't really noticeably rebel. I remember feeling just really 
embarrassed about myself, ashamed about myself, because there was kind of like an element of competition there. We would like, you know, weigh ourselves and then both of our weights would be like written on the same like clipboard. And I would Jesus always see Christ. like her weight being lower than mine and like always feel so bad about myself. Yeah. And it was pretty bad because I ended up developing like a binge eating problem because like, obviously I was just not getting enough nutrition and like that can result in increase in appetite. And so I would start like binge eating and then I would start gaining weight. So then when we would weigh ourselves, I would be gaining weight when I was supposed to be losing weight. That created a lot of shame in me and just like, yeah, it was really, really bad for my sense of self and just my ability to be comfortable with myself and be comfortable around like other women too, because I felt like a lot of inferiority with other women because I thought that like other women were like my mom. They just dieted all the time and they just lost weight all the time. And like, that was just how women were. And so I thought that like, because I was so miserable with that, then that must mean that I'm somehow lesser than, than other women. Mm. What you just said about the comparison stuff sounded like an absolute mess, but it got to a point, Helena, where you became... Yeah suicidal or had a level of suicidality can you tell me how you felt in that moment and and the build up to that perhaps maybe so I think that kind of started in my freshman year of high school because that's when like the dieting stuff was pretty bad in middle school you know like it was bad but in my Mm. freshman year that's when I kind of started like gaining weight I was feeling terrible about myself. I wouldn't wear a t-shirt outside. Like I always had to have like a heavy sweatshirt and like long pants and stuff. I was super self-conscious about my body. And also at that point, I just kind of drifted apart from most of my friends. It wasn't a falling out per se, but just I think we had different classes and they found cooler friends. And then I was just kind of left alone. And so I lost a lot of my relationships. And I also think at that point, like my parents' marriage started to really fall apart. And like, they just weren't getting along with each other very well. I just was like totally isolated and I hated my body. Like that was the biggest thing for me, I think. I just absolutely hated my body so much. I was self-harming a lot. And that's just kind of when I started feeling like, Like I hate myself and nothing is going to ever get better. I talk a lot on this podcast about self-harm, Elena, and what it provided for the person who was in pain. Was it escape? Was it an emotional release or something else? I think it was a way to very like uh, maladaptively cope with the frustration I was feeling at myself. Because I remember like when I would self-harm, it was always done out of like anger. Like I would get overwhelmed with this feeling of like anger and hatred towards myself. And I would just kind of like go at it. It was a way to cope with that. I hated myself for not being like other women, in quotes, not being good enough, like not being as good as other girls, that boys weren't interested in me. I remember like a particularly bad moment when like some kid in my class, we were in a conversation and he asked me like who my first kiss was. And I said that like, oh, I've never had a first kiss. And he was like, what? You've never like, have you even dated a boy? And I was like, no. And he was just like, what? Oh my God. How can you be in high school and you've never dated a boy? Like, that's so weird. He was like making fun of me. And I just felt like horrible. I just went into like such a dark place. And I was just like, 
I'm so ugly. Like, I hate myself. Why would a boy ever want me? Like, I'm so like, blah, blah, blah. And so it was like those kinds of feelings that would come up and they would be so overwhelming to me that I would like resort to self-harm to just like be an outlet for that because I just felt like so you enraged with myself. an incredible myself. amount of bravery and resilience to get through this, Helena. So before we talk about the transition, what got you through that period, do you think? Um... Honestly, the trans stuff, really, to be honest, it was definitely a coping mechanism for that, especially like, you know, before I started testosterone, there's about three years where it was mostly just kind of like online. It was just kind of like a fantasy that I had. And like, I would go by like he, him online and stuff, but nothing really out in the real world. And I think that fantasy aspect of creating like an alter ego for myself and having everyone online call me by this different name and these different pronouns and, you know, I'd always use pictures of boys and like drawings of boys and stuff to represent myself online. And so that I think just having that alternate reality where I could just pretend to be a different person, I think it was kind of a lifeline for me. Like, I'm not saying that that's healthy. I definitely would have done better if I had close relationships and stuff, healthy things. But um, since I didn't have those healthy things, I think that this fantasy alternate reality element, it gave me something to focus on. And it also gave me like this idea that, oh, well, when I'm an adult, I can go on testosterone and that will fix everything. So like, I can't give up now because I still have this opportunity to like go on testosterone Mm. and become a boy. And then life is going to be so much better. Can you tell the listeners if you experienced gender dysphoria, if the bulimia cause that or develop that and then also how did the testosterone affect you what is the reality of taking testosterone for biological females i don't think that i experienced real you know i don't know what you can call real but i don't think that i experienced the kind of gender dysphoria that i hear about from friends of mine who are still like currently feeling dysphoria i don't think that it was the same thing really it's kind of like interesting because I think a lot of people think that you feel dysphoria and then you think about what that means for you and then you decide that you want to transition. Whereas for me, it was a little bit of a different order of events where I was just generally kind of miserable. And then I stumbled on this idea of trans that told me, if you feel like you're different from other women, then you're trans. If you don't like your body, then you're trans. And then after I adopted like, who, well, maybe I might be trans. Like this sounds like Mm. this idea of being trans is giving me hope. Then after that, my pre-existing body image issues refocused from like general dissatisfaction with my body and my weight to like a dissatisfaction with my body being female. So it was kind of like the trans came before the quote unquote dysphoria for me. But before, you know, identifying as trans, even though I had body image issues, like it was never a problem with being a girl. Like I wanted to be a girl who just looked different than I did already. I never wanted to be a boy. So that's kind of how that went for me. And still like when I was feeling, you know, quote unquote dysphoria after I identified as trans, I always still kind Mm. of wanted like just a more androgynous body, like I guess kind of male-ish, but it was never really about like, I want a penis or, or anything like that. It was always just kind of like, oh, I want to be lanky. I want to be thinner. I want my thighs to be smaller and look more Mm. like, because men have smaller thighs than Mm. women usually. That kind of stuff. Before we talk about Tumblr, 
I just want to go back to what you said about the androgyny, because in the 80s and to a certain extent, the late 70s, there was icons like Grace Jones and David Bowie who were very androgynous presenting, but they were still staunchly male and female and man and woman. And, you know, Grace Jones was a very masculine appearing woman, but she dated some of the most good looking men in the entire planet. Do you think if you had seen people like that, when you were growing up who were comfortable in their skin, you'd have felt more comfortable in yours without adopting the trans identity? I don't really know because that's not really like where I was coming from. Like it wasn't that I wanted to be a girl who wore a tuxedo or something like that. It wasn't like I had like a more androgynous, like personal clothing style. It was very much about my body. It was what's under the clothes. The clothes didn't matter as much. I didn't want to be a masculine woman at all. I wanted to be a feminine <laughs> man <laughs> so yeah definitely like a, a very different okay. place i was coming from on tumblr then when we spoke off air you said obviously as a speculative stat that about 50 percent of people on tumblr have a gender identity probably even so more what was it about tumblr that you found yeah. so compelling and what is it that some of these kids find so compelling or as a community i guess so for me it was like the fact that my personality type, I guess, when I was a teenager was like, I would get very, very fixated and like obsessed with one thing. And so like, for example, the first thing that I kind of had that about was classic rock. I was really <laughs> obsessed with Elvis. Like I had a wall where I put up all of these like cutouts of like vintage magazines that I would buy on eBay. I would cut out all these pictures of like Elvis and also the Beatles and also Led Zeppelin too. But like mainly Elvis, I think was like my big thing because I thought young Elvis was like attractive and then put them all on my wall and stuff. And like, yeah, I was just like totally freaking obsessed. I couldn't really hold a conversation that was not about that. So like making, <laughs> literally it was bad. I don't know why I, I kind of like lost that as I grew up, but as a teenager, it's like when I was obsessed with something, I literally would like Just always not go be back able to, to Elvis, that serious that fandom. Not about what I was obsessed with. <laughs> seriously, seriously. I think obviously for obvious reasons that made it difficult for me to like make friends because I didn't want to talk to people about whatever drama was going on with other people at school. I didn't want to talk to them about homework. I didn't want to talk to them about, I don't know, what's going on in their lives. Why would you do that? Um, I just wanted to talk about Elvis 24-7 all the time. And so I was Googling, you know, some kind of old video or something. Because I also, I was just an intense person. I'm still an intense person. But I had like every appearance that Elvis ever made like cataloged in my brain. And so I was searching for one particular talk show appearance or something that he did and then I stumbled on some photos that I had never seen of this on this website called Tumblr and I was like what the heck where are these photos like who's posting these photos and so I just dove deeper into this website and I saw that there was like a lot of people posting like photos cutouts from magazines scans from magazines videos gifs and I was like whoa 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 like what is going on here and then like, I, I just looked deeper and I saw that, oh, these are other like teenage girls posting this. And I was like, wait a minute, there's other teenage girls like me 
who are like doing this. Like I thought I was literally like the only weirdo on the planet who was doing this. So I made an account and I started posting, you know, some scans of the magazines that I had and stuff. And, you know, people started responding. People started following me. I found this community, a pretty small community. <laughs> like there was probably literally like 30 people out of like the whole planet who were in this little community of 14, 15, 16 year old girls who were like posting stuff about Elvis and other bands and stuff like that. So yeah, I just immediately kind of wanted to spend all my time on there because there I actually could talk about this 24 seven. Like I literally just kind of like checked out from real life and was just on Tumblr talking to people, responding to people, I exchanged phone numbers and stuff with all these girls and like we would just text like all day. And so I just stopped paying attention in class. I stopped just talking to anybody at school. I would literally just sit in the corner on my phone all day, like talking to these girls who were like across the planet. I know, I remember I had like two friends from France and they were like my best friends ever. And they would like stay up until six in the morning also high school students, they would stay up till like six in the morning. So we could like talk on Skype about Elvis. And then they would just like be dead the whole day and texting me about how like sleep deprived they are and stuff. That like mm. energy of like the obsessive teenage girl and like finding camaraderie in that because obviously I was very self conscious about that. Like I knew I was different from a lot of the other girls that I was talking to at school. So just finding like other people I could relate to who were like that too. Um, yeah, that's what like drew me to Tumblr in the go first down. place. It's a, the modern fandom, but maybe a bit more toxic because yeah, back in the day, all you, all you could do was magazines, but now it's like, yeah, a different level. I want to talk about detransition now because from speaking mm. off air and your other interviews, it very much feels like it was entwined with your sexuality, specifically one romantic relationship you had during this period with a biological female who identified as a trans boy or trans man can you tell me about this relationship and how it led to the eureka moment for your detransition to start yeah so this was like a pretty big relationship in my life we were like quote unquote together for about four years and i say quote unquote together because it's a little bit complicated so i am heterosexual like i'm only really interested in like biological men but at the time when i was like 17 18 I had never been with a person before. I had had one kiss and it was with my best friend and we just did it to like get it over with. Love that. Because we'd never kissed anybody <laughs> before. Like literally like, what the fuck? I know, just like so like, ah, cringe. Yeah, so, <laughs> so like I'd never been with another person before and I had this like gender ideology in my head that said like, oh, men has nothing to do with your actual body. Being a man is just like what you identify as. And so like I met this other trans man at the time in college and she like passed really well. Like she looked like a biological male. And I guess I just thought like the fact that she was a female, like wasn't relevant. Like I just kind of told myself that. And we immediately became super, super close. Like we related on a lot and we just had also that similar, I guess, like mm. personality type of like intense, obsessive. And so we could just talk to each other like that and really relate like that and had the same like energy. And yeah, so we just immediately became super, super close. We were both confused and we just decided we were going to date and stuff like that. And so, yeah, we remained very, very close, even though like the romantic aspect fizzled out relatively quickly. It was like agreed to be like right. each other's 
other half, I guess, like you, you could say maybe, cause we were still like, we were still like so, so close. And so we actually both moved to a different city together and we just remained like very close. And when I started questioning this whole trans thing, I like confided in her. And at first she was like, no, 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 like, no, you can't, you're trans, like, don't even question it. But then like slowly kind of, we both came to this understanding that being trans was a huge mistake. And then what really kind of made me admit it was like, she made this montage of pictures of us from the first time we met all the way up until the present. And in like this montage, I just kind of like watched myself change from how I kind of looked in high school to almost a completely different person visually. And that was just super disturbing to me. I had never really thought about it that way. And I was just like, whoa, like what the hell? And then I kind of put that together with how my mental health had gone to the shitter, really. If it was bad before, it was worse then. And so I was like, wait a minute, it clicked for me that like, this is really wrong. Like this is making my Mm. life so much worse. What am I doing? After that, we had a lot of conversations and we both kind of decided that we both made a mistake. And then we together went on this journey of figuring out like what the truth was and stuff like that. We're not even like speaking anymore. I'm pretty sure she hates me, but at the time, like she was a really important person and me just having someone to confide in and like someone who understood me. Mm. Before um, the D transition, you said that by adopting a new name, we're not going to say on this podcast because you said you feel quite embarrassed about it now. You described it as trying to kill off a person you didn't like and becoming a new person. That sounds quite violent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the transsexuals I speak to who transitioned in the 90s, they don't like the phrase dead name. They just say it's their former name and they go by a new one now. What did that feel like for you, the transition? And then how did the detransition yeah. come after that? Definitely. I relate to that idea of like trying to kill off myself, basically, and kind of like replace myself with like a new person. Mm. Um, It's very much like trying to be somebody else. Like I think a lot of people especially when they're younger, can relate to that desire to be a different person. Like you kind of feel like, I just want to be somebody else. Like, I don't care who it is. I just want to not be me. And so that's definitely like where I was coming from. And it was kind of violent, right? I kind of had, like I was describing earlier, like so much anger towards myself and just hatred towards myself. When it actually came to transitioning, instead of just doing it all online, when that became a reality and I had to like inject testosterone every week, I do feel like I kind of had to summon some of that like hatred to get through that. I hated doing the injections. I freaking couldn't stand it. I dreaded it all week. And then when it came time to actually do it, I literally had to summon like hatred for myself to like plunge the needle in. So I definitely feel that's where I was coming from. Like you kind of said, like when I talk to some of like the Mm. transsexuals I know, I don't get that vibe from them. Whereas I think that was very prevalent with me. It was the same with like, you know, wearing a binder. That shit is not comfortable, especially when you're wearing it 16 hours a day or whatever, like I would. And yeah, I I feel like I also had to summon hatred for myself to like put myself through compressing myself all day and to put myself through altering my mannerisms so that I, I thought I was like walking like a man or whatever, like just totally kind of 
not really realistic stuff. Going back um, to the suicidality, yeah. if we can, before we move on, you were hospitalized twice in August 2017 from attempts to take your own life, Helena. And you said there was a moment in the hospital where you said, what the fuck has happened to my life? So how did you feel in that moment? Did you feel like a failure or not? Yeah, it actually wasn't like a for real suicide attempt that led me there. Back to your kind of question earlier about like, what did the testosterone feel like? It made my rage towards myself unbearable because anger just got so much worse when I was on testosterone. I just became like a super like angry, angsty, like, uh, I don't know how to describe it, but just like a ball of suppressed rage all the time. When I would get that overwhelming feeling that would kind of like lead me to self-harm in the past, I would just kind of take it to like another level, just like hurting myself and stuff. It was like one event where that got pretty bad where I was just like, I need to like go to the hospital to get this taken care of. And then when I was at the hospital, they were like, we think that you should be like checked in to like the psych ward. Because I told them kind of what I was going through and it it made me look really unstable. I think a lot of that excess was due to the testosterone. I think, you know, if you're an ER doctor or something and you see like a person like that come in, you think that they're like severely unstable. So yeah, I was checked into the hospital. The first one was actually not that bad. It almost was like right. like a vacation from like my life because my life fucking sucked at the time. Yeah. And so I was like, I'm just going to like sit in this hospital and read this book and like talk to all these other weird people. But then the second time that was where I was just sitting in the hospital. Mm. I was like, dude, what the fuck is my life? Like, this is crazy. So after I got out of the hospital the first time, I had to do like a outpatient thing where I would go for like three hours, three times a week. It's like a group therapy thing. And then so I was just like continuing to not be doing well in this setting. And I was continuing to have these kind of like unstable like moments. And so then they sat me down and they said that I would have to be, they kind of pressured me to check myself in again. And so I did that. And then that second time was kind of when I was just like, okay, what the hell? I kind of like checked back in with what I thought my life would be as a teenager when I was thinking about, you know, like becoming a boy and like everything would be so amazing to like what my life was actually. And I was just like, this is not adding up. What the hell do I do? I didn't really make that connection between like, this means that you are not supposed to be trans. I just kind of thought like, what am I doing with my life? How do I make my life better? Like, how do I achieve this like you know, becoming a boy and everything being amazing. It wasn't until later that I actually kind of made the connection that like, okay, it is the testosterone mm. and it is the being trans I've that is causing these problems. and listened to almost every interview you've done, Helena, especially the ones with Benjamin Boyce in the last few years. There's been this really, pardon the pun, lovely transition of you in your first interview with Benjamin and your last one where you've started to kind of really accept yourself physically as well you know you've adopted more feminine clothes you know you're wearing less baggy t-shirts and hoodies and stuff like that do you feel like you've accepted yourself yet or are you still a work in progress I feel like I'm like way better than I've ever been and especially in the last I don't know maybe six months like I feel like I've really started accepting myself but also just like developing like actual confidence like not second guessing myself not like you know cringing at myself because I used to kind of do that all the time I'd be like oh like everything I do is cringe (laughs) so I definitely feel like that's gotten so much better I still struggle with like body image stuff 
but it's not nearly as bad. Like, I definitely feel like it's way better than it's ever been, but I still think that that is something that I'm probably going to struggle with for a long time. But yeah, I'm definitely becoming, I think, a person that I'm proud of and I enjoy to be myself now. Whereas in the past, obviously, like I said, like I was trying to escape myself, but now I'm I read Helen Joyce's book, Trans, and you were into in it. You've been into in a few of these books, but especially in Helen Joyce's one, you said... I feel like a cult survivor, a thousand percent, that cult robbed me of my adolescence, which is quite strong words for the listeners who will not be aware of this conversation. In your words, why do you say it was a cult that you ended up joining? And what would you have done in your words if you hadn't joined this cult? Hmm. It's interesting because like the word cult, I think, mm. you know, sets some people off. But I will say that within the trans community, there are information control strategies and there are thought control strategies and there are emotional manipulation strategies that within the group are employed on other members of the group by the whole group there's no like i guess leader organizing this within the group there are smaller you know individual i guess circles where very i guess you could call them like narcissistic personalities do kind of rise to the top and carry out a lot of this like ma manipulation that i was talking about um and i think that the trans community the way it's structured enables that to happen where like narcissistic personalities can actually take advantage of a lot of people so in that sense i definitely think like there are strong cult dynamics within the trans community. But I kind of think about it differently in terms of like, did it rob me of my adolescence? I think in a sense it did. I think that the trans, the gender ideology, the way that it is online, especially, it exploits certain weaknesses within families and within people to really like pressure you to see yourself in one particular way. And it really dissuades any kind of like questioning or real introspection, it dissuades having like compassion with yourself. And it kind of just strongly encourages you're only seeing yourself in this one particular way. You're only seeing the world in this one particular way. And you can't question it, or else people are going to flip out and oftentimes like punish you socially punish you. So the kinds of people who are drawn to this are people who don't have strong support systems in their life. They don't have strong relationships in their life. And so they turn to this like community that in the beginning will love bomb you. I remember when I first kind of started changing my pronouns or calling myself trans, like I would just get beaten with positivity, like constant positivity, people embracing me. And that was just something that I was really lacking in my life. And so you get kind of drawn in with this like constant positivity. But then once you're kind of in it, you can't question anything. Like even if your life is terrible because of the choices that you've made due to this belief system, you cannot question it. One interesting example is there's a video that a popular trans YouTuber made about this is a biological female about this person's genital surgeries that they had. And in this video, this person talks about these horrific complications that occurred because of this surgery and how, you know, oh, like they were one. basically oh, yeah, disabled for like a year. Yeah. 
But in the video, this person keeps saying, none of this is saying that you shouldn't get the surgery. If you still want to get the surgery, you should get the surgery. Don't listen to me. Don't let this dissuade you from getting the surgery. I don't want this to be interpreted by anyone that I'm dissuading anyone from getting the surgery. Just this kind of like anxious reaffirming that like, don't listen to these experiences and let them make you second guess you getting the surgery. And like, that's kind of really, really prominent within the trans community where it's like people are so anxious about questioning anything, being seen as questioning gender identity or being seen as questioning their own gender identity. It creates a lot of anxiety and a lot of stress. And so that's where I'm coming from when I say that there's like strong cult dynamics. And I do think that it derailed my life in a pretty big way. But now that I'm a little bit, you know, like, I'm starting to get on my feet and like become a little bit more emotionally stable and stuff like that. There's no way for me to know if life would have been better had I not gotten involved in this. I'm very fortunate, you know, more fortunate than others that I'm not suffering any long-term health consequences of this. Most of the long-term like struggles that I've had have been psychological, but again, there's no way for me to assume in retrospect that had I never gotten involved in this, I wouldn't have gotten involved in something else something maybe even worse. Um, You never know. So I think that it's definitely made it more difficult for me to socially adjust and build healthy relationships when I was an adolescent. I think that's probably the most damaging part of it. Adolescence is kind of the period where you're developing your relationship skills. And it's kind of like where having relationships and what kind of relationships you do have is very important for your development. And At the time, you know, like the trans ideology kind of made me really reject a lot of people because I could only stand being around talking to people who were also inside gender ideology. Like I really could not entertain anything that would make me question that. I was so terrified of questioning it. So I think that in that sense, it really kind of like impaired my social development and stuff. And, And I think that's harmful, but there's no way to know if I hadn't been involved in gender ideology that you know, life would have been better or easier. So that's my long-winded answer Let's reflect answer on your that. mental health journey now. So A, obviously this has been a very difficult and traumatic one for you, Helena, but you've made it through it and you are here today. So what has it taught you about yourself? And if you could go back and talk to the 10-year-old or 12-year-old Helena who was being weighed on a weekly basis and going to Weight Watchers, or the 17-year-old Helena who was falling down the Tumblr rabbit hole and then getting on testosterone, or the 20-year-old Helena who was suicidal or self-harming, what would you say to her knowing what you do now? Um, I would probably, hmm, I would probably just kind of like embrace her. Like I would just validate what she was going through, like her emotions really, because I think for Most of my like adolescence, right, I think I was not listening to myself and I was not being compassionate with myself and understanding that like what I was going through was abnormal and really hard. I just thought that I was the problem and like I needed to be punished and I needed to be changed. So I think I would go back and tell her that that's not really what's going on, that that's just kind of how she feels right now because she doesn't have the skills and perspective to think differently, but that like she's not the problem. It's like these life experiences that have been really harmful and that she's allowed to feel like that's an injustice and that's not right and like not to take it out on herself. 
talked about your journey. Let's talk about this detransition advocacy journey now that you've gone on, Helena. You've gathered a fairly substantial following on the one hand, but also quite a lot of abuse yeah. on the other. Can you tell me first and the listeners why you even wanted to do this, given the toxicity of the conversation? I'm a very opinionated person and I need to express myself like I I can't hold it to myself. And so when I was, you know, on Twitter in the very beginning, I had like 28 followers on the same account for the longest time for like two years, I literally had like less than 30 followers. And then at some point, I didn't know there was like this huge D-trans community and stuff out there. I found out about this concept of ROGD, rapid onset gender dysphoria, where for anyone who doesn't know that it's a term coined by a researcher named Lisa Lippman. And she describes this phenomenon that she learned from reports by parents. She had conversations with parents and she noticed a lot of commonalities in how they were describing their children's story with identifying as trans. And these commonalities were heavy social media usage right before the identification as trans. Other commonalities were pre-existing mental health issues, friend groups where everybody in the friend group or many people in the friend group would all come out as trans around the same time. And I really related to this. So I looked more into this concept and everything that I read about it, I felt like was really describing my experience. So I was just like, you know, like I need to back this up because I also saw that people were saying that, you know, it's fake and she's just coming up with this term to be transphobic and to lie about trans people. Um, so I just really felt like that wasn't true. And I felt that Lisa was onto something big because I felt like that really described my experience. And so I went on Twitter with my 30 followers and I said like, hashtag ROGD is real. And then I made love a thread. this you thread love talking a thread. about my experiences. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. You absolutely love a thread. People ended up like finding that. Um, I think it got like maybe like 500 likes or something like that. And yeah, people were, people started following me. Other detransitioners started following me. I started talking to these people, sharing experiences. Um, I started talking to a lot of parents who told me about like, you know, their children's experiences. And I felt like there was a lot of commonalities with mine. I started reading more. I started looking at all these other perspectives that I had never considered before when I was in like this trans community. And I just realized that there was so much that I'd been insulated from. And I'd never really considered a lot of these perspectives. And then so I just started developing like opinions and stuff. And I just started tweeting about it and posting about it. <laughs> and then at some point, like Benjamin Boyce found me and he did that first little interview with me. And yeah, just from then, I just feel like I have a lot to say about this topic. And I feel like there's so much BS around this topic. And I, I do feel like I kind of see through this BS and I can kind of like get through to some of the things that matter when it comes to understanding where these teenagers are coming from. And so, yeah, I've just been like posting my opinions about that. And I guess it's been resonating with people. So people are telling me that they find a lot of, I guess you could say, uh, relief in reading what I'm saying, especially parents, like they really see like their kids reflected in what I'm saying. So I've spoken yeah, to kind of how Sinead, it started. Helena about the number of detransitioners out there in the UK. And most of my listeners probably wouldn't have never heard of the term detransition before I interviewed Sinead. So I'm very thankful to her. I'm very thankful to you for coming on. Can you give the reality as much as you can give it for the US as people will think, you know, the common stat 
chucked around is 1% of people detransition. But we both know that number is probably not accurate, is it? Yeah. I mean, there's a billion stats they all throw around. I know there's there's one stat that's like 0.003% of people detransition. And like the thing about these studies, just to like go over them really quickly, is that one, there's two main areas of error where these studies that pertain to these studies. One is that some of these studies, if they are contemporary, they're surveys of people who identify as trans. So if you're asking people who identify as trans, how many of them have detransitioned, you're going to get a really low freaking number. And of the handful of people who say yes, they're usually saying, you know, I haven't mentally detransitioned. I just stopped the hormones for whatever reason. So that's where you're getting that. Like they're not asking the people who have detransitioned. And then they, they say, you know, like 1% of trans people detransition. And it's like, well, because detransitioners aren't trans people. They're detransitioners. So that's a problem. And then the other problem is um, studies from like 1995 before this new cohort came about. Because if you look at the actual data of who is transitioning between like 2013 to 2016, the demographics completely changed. Before that, the main demographics who were transitioning were prepubescent boys and adult men middle-aged men, basically. There was almost no adolescent females or even adolescent boys transitioning. But around like 2013 to 2016, the numbers completely changed, where now the dominant demographic that has increased by like a proportion, I think, in the UK, the NHS referral data shows a 4,000% increase in adolescent referrals to their gender service. Now this biggest demographic is adolescent females. So that's never been seen before in history. So this demographic is going to have different reasons for transitioning than the demographics in the past and is probably going to have a much different rate of detransitioning. So you can't really use numbers that were calculated from much smaller, much more rigorously selected groups of prepubescent boys and adult men you can't expect those numbers to reflect these adolescent females who not only are a completely different demographic, but they're not being screened. For example, for myself, there was no psychological assessment involved in my prescription of testosterone. I just walked in, I signed a paper, I handed them cash, and they gave me my testosterone prescription. So that's very different than how it was done in the past, where people had to go through two years of therapy, for example, in order to be prescribed a hormone. So yeah, these studies that were done in the past just do not reflect the current state of things at all whatsoever. So we don't really have great data on what percentage of people are detransitioning. And so that's really why you can't go by a lot of these statistics that people throw around. The best you can do is kind of look at these populations of detransitioners that congregate online. Like, for example, on Reddit, there's a detrans subreddit on Reddit. And you can see that there's literally thousands of people saying this very similar thing to what I'm saying. Basically, pre-existing mental health issues, social media use finding gender ideology on social media and kind of convincing yourself that you're trans based on wanting to be a part of this community. That's like such a incredibly common thread that runs through thousands and thousands of these testimonies online. So that I think is a better metric to really understand what's a going on. A lot of my listeners also hear a lot about how if these children with gender dysphoria don't transition 
they will be very, very vulnerable to suicide and all sorts of things like that. Is that narrative true? And if it isn't, that doesn't sound very helpful. That sounds like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, exactly. There are suicide prevention guidelines that talk about how suicide should be talked about in things like the media um, in order to prevent people from engaging in suicidal behavior. Um, And one of those guidelines is usually avoiding ascribing suicide to one particular cause, because anybody who really understands suicidality knows that it's a very complicated and very individual thing. The reason an individual feels suicidal is going to be different from why another individual feels suicidal. Even if there are commonalities, it's a very personal thing. Suicidality is a highly emotional, experienced thing. It's not just everybody who experiences this one particular event is going to feel suicidal. There's a huge misunderstanding and a huge irresponsibility happening in this conversation about suicidality that, like you said, it is a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's telling these young, vulnerable kids that, you know, you are going to be suicidal unless you get this particular treatment, which is just, that is incredibly unhelpful. Like, you should be helping understand, like, why an individual is feeling suicidal and helping them to feel stable and confident enough in their life so that they can face the hardships of life without feeling suicidal. Telling these young people that the only way that they can not feel suicidal is by transitioning, that's doing them a great disservice in my opinion. So that's wrong from that perspective. But also it's wrong because there's no evidence that transitioning prevents suicide in adolescents or children. That's one of these these big things where it's, you know, it's based on, again, false statistics. One statistic that is thrown around is that there's a 40% suicide attempt rate in trans youth. When if you actually look into some principled criticisms of this study, um, there are a lot of issues with it. For example, self-report of suicide attempts is notoriously not very trustworthy because some people who are going through a lot of emotional pain They want that pain to be validated. So they might report things as suicide attempts that are not actually proper suicide attempts. So for example, I know like in the past, I would tell people, therapists, for example, that some self-harm that I had done in the past was a suicide attempt when it wasn't. It was just regular non-suicidal self-injury. So I think that there's like that tendency for people to want to be validated. And so you really can't trust self-reports of suicide attempts. A proper study would have to be conducted through, you know, looking at actual emergency room numbers and how many people are coming in for officially labeled suicide attempts who are identifying as transgender, but we don't really have that kind of information. All we have is self-reports from very small sample sizes that aren't very reliable numbers. And also a suicide attempt is not the same thing as a completed suicide. Even if you assume that suicide attempts are genuine and not exaggerated self-reports, a suicide attempt is often trying to accomplish a very different thing than an actual completed suicide. Often suicide attempts are calls for help. They're not truly like intended to be lethal. So it's just like, these are distinctions that maybe to the average person, you may not think it matters, but in terms of, you know, actually calculating statistics about what certain populations are at risk for, like these distinctions really do matter. And it's kind of like a manipulation of these studies that trans groups will use to 
create this narrative that if these interventions aren't given at a young age, that these kids will kill themselves when there's absolutely zero evidence. One more thing about those 40% studies, it doesn't discriminate between trans-identified people who have accessed hormones and surgeries and who have not. So you really can't use a study like that to say whether or not the, the medical interventions make any difference in terms of suicidality. So you can't assume what is being assumed from the information that we have. So from all of those standpoints, it's extremely irresponsible to frame this issue as like, if you don't give a child a permanent medical intervention that, you know, if you're talking about puberty blockers followed by hormones, that's going to result in infertility, that's going to result in lack of sexual function, that's going to result in higher risk of bone density issues like osteoporosis, that's going to result in higher rates of stroke, heart disease, cancer. Like these are massive, massive problems that result from these medical interventions that are, you know, superseding a natural puberty and placing unnatural synthetic hormones into a young person's body and not allowing that body to really develop the way that it should. That's a really dangerous thing to do to a person. One step beyond hormones, Helena, is surgeries. Now, my listeners will hear top surgery or bottom surgery for male and females and not really know what they mean. So for females, top surgery is a double mastectomy and bottom surgery could be anything from a phalloplasty so a synthetic penis being surgically implanted on them or it could be removing the womb or something along those lines it's kind of making me feel a bit queasy thinking about it to be honest and then for a man i'm not really sure if there is a top surgery option apart from putting breasts on and then for bottom surgery yeah breast augmentation sorry for transsexuals who do it as adults i think it can be involving a penis being inverted into a neovagina or I'm presuming for some of the teenagers is an oreectomy, so Mm -hmm. testicles being removed. These are hugely consequential and life-altering surgeries. Now, for a consenting adult who's gone through that process of therapy and and really figured out this is the correct course for them, that seems, you know, okay to me. But for kids, even up to the age of, say, 21, this horrifies me to think that someone could be doing that and then regret it. Yeah. I mean, it is really horrific. And even when you say the proper medical names for these surgeries, like that doesn't really convey like what's going on. And I encourage listeners to actually go and research. If you're on the fence about whether you think these surgeries should be happening, whether it's to kids or, or even, you know, I'm, I'm critical about some of these surgeries being done on adults as well. Um, I encourage listeners to actually go and research like how these surgeries are done because it's so easy to kind of disconnect with that and just think like, oh, top surgery is just when they make your chest flat. It's like, no, they make an incision along the bottom of a woman's breast, take out the tissue, make another incision along the top of the breast, take off the nipple, and then sew the incisions together so that it's flat. And then they throw the fat tissue, the breast tissue into the garbage. And then they take that nipple that has often now lost all sensation and they graft it back onto the flattened chest area. And so it often results in lack of sensation. Sometimes the body will even reject the nipple and the nipple has to be removed. Like that's really common. That's just, I think even um, a mastectomy is one of the least gruesome surgeries. So if that was gruesome to anyone listening to that, I would really encourage you to look into some of these genital surgeries because they can be just absolutely very intense, very Mm. disturbing. 
very consequential for anyone under the age of like 25. I think it should not be happening, especially for minors, which if anyone tries to tell you that that's not happening, it absolutely is happening. There are states in America where you can be legally considered an adult and allowed to make a medical decision, including having a double mastectomy at 15. Oregon is one of those states where if your insurance will pay for it, then you can go without parental consent a, and get a mastectomy a at 15. Casualizing, um, isn't there? A very so, famous, yeah, well, infamous happening. one in certain circles. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, a teenager and a child like does not have the ability to kind of project into the future and you know really come to terms with the risks associated with these massive procedures. And the way it's presented is just very like unrealistic. It's like, oh, top surgery is just when they make you have a male chest. It's like, no, it's still your female chest. It's mm-hmm. just been cut into and changed. So yeah, it's just very wrong, I think, for a lot of these surgeries to be happening to young people. But I think even some, you know, like a phalloplasty, for example, I don't think that should be done on adults. And if you don't know yeah, why I'm onto, saying that, I encourage you to look into it. I don't want to say sunnier it. climbs, but onto things that would make me feel less queasy. A really interesting point you made on the Transparency podcast no. with the two Aaron's was that where say for example five years ago most of the females wanting to transition as far as i'm aware were butch lesbians with very high levels of gender dysphoria in the us at least i think and you said now the majority are heterosexual females Mm. so why is that shifted you and aaron said it was through their desire to transition to in quote unquote fight the patriarchy can you explain what you meant by that because when i read that if you're in that world of like, at the extreme end, for example, kill all men, men are trash, blah, 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 blah. Why would you want to present as the sex that you hated? Well, because part of gender ideology, it stems from something that, you know, in academic circles is called queer theory. One of the main areas where queer theory deviates from regular feminism is that it believes that gender is a social construct in the sense that A long time ago, patriarchal evil males, they looked at people's bodies and they categorized them into two sexes, male and female, completely arbitrarily. Um, There's actually no commonality between these people who have these bodies. They were just categorized that way in order to make the ones with the penises have all these privileges and so that they could subjugate the ones who didn't have penises. And so that's why gender exists. And if you just reject that and you make everybody forget about this designation of people with penises being males and people with vaginas being females, then that will kind of like even the playing field and there will no longer be patriarchy (laughs) anymore. Like that's a very like oversimplified explanation of what the belief system is. And so that's where really like where that is coming from. In a lot of ways, when you are a, a trans man, or trans boy in this like current youth culture, social justice sense, you're not trying to be a natal male. Like a lot of the times these girls, like I said, they don't want a penis. They don't feel that kind of dysphoria. They just want to aesthetically embody a certain, I guess, popular androgynous aesthetic that is very popular in some circles. And so they want to be trans. They want to be under that umbrella of trans because that gets them a lot of social credit. And they're not really trying to become natal males. And you're correct that they often have a lot of 
antagonism and animosity against what is called cis men, because cis men are seen as these like oppressors who invented these categories of gender and blah, 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 blah. So yeah, it's really like trying to subvert that. And um, they they want to present not quite male, but not call themselves men. Is that right? That's confusing, but... (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. It's intended to be confusing. That's the point. The point is to just confuse everyone into... Like, if you just confuse enough people, then the patriarchy will fall apart. I don't know how that quite follows, but on to another question. (laughs) When these heterosexual females do transition, Helena, for most of them, their sexuality doesn't change. Now, you know, on the Transparency podcast, Aaron T has talked about how his sexuality did change when he went on testosterone, which is, I guess, an exception to the rule. However, you said instead of continuing to pursue heterosexual males, some of them pursue gay men post-transition. I mean, for the listeners listening, I imagine that doesn't go well. So what is the long-term mental health impact on these females, these girls who transition, when they inevitably have that romantic rejection? It's... uh... It's just a very confusing mm. situation for everybody involved. In terms of like sexuality changing while on testosterone, I think a lot of people who experience this, my guess is that what they're experiencing is just insanely increased sex drive. So like a woman who previously was only ever aroused by like men, when the sex drive is just like blown through the roof, might be, you know, aroused by any kind of sexual situation just because the sex drive thing like that's real. So I think like sexuality does change for some people in that sense where they're just they're aroused by more situations and more people than they might have been in the past. But yeah, in terms of going for gay men, yeah, that's... That opens up a whole new can of worms about where a lot of these like young girls are coming from in terms of reading a lot of gay fan fiction and yeah, just like that whole scene, which um, if listeners aren't familiar with that, that's like an entire like <laughs> underworld. Like that's like a whole freaking thing. I actually was just talking to a mom this morning because she messaged me. She was like so confused. She was like, what the heck? My daughter just came out as trans and I found out that she's been, you know, obsessed with this thing called Larry, which Larry is a no way Louis and Harry from One Direction. It's a pairing between them. It's like an entire conspiracy theory. One Directioners literally hacked an airport security system to get footage of Louis and Harry sitting next to each other so that they literally do. It's a crazy world out there with these young girls who think obsessively and they're really obsessed with boys and they get into like gay pairings and stuff because they're just that obsessed with boys. And yeah, I'm not saying that everybody is out there hacking airport Wi-Fi or airport security systems, but that is a real thing that happened with One Direction fans. So yeah, there's these girls who are really into like gay fan fiction and that plays a part in why they want to be trans. They want to be boys. They think that they're going to like live out gay fan fiction in the real world. It's just like crazy. So yeah, a lot of them do kind of try to go for gay men. I know multiple young women who identify as trans or at least did at the time I knew them that had grinder accounts which I think is really dangerous like why are you like tricking gay men yeah that's really freaking dangerous like there's weirdos on grinder there's bad people on there it's a mess that whole side of things is a mess but yeah that does happen I saw myself as a gay trans man I was attracted to men but I never thought that I had a chance with like actual gay men sit and 
digest that Louis and Harry so I didn't thing. When you that put the th- when you put the thing on Twitter, do you know what I actually thought when you said Larry? <laughs> I thought of that porn. What was it called? Leisure suit, leisure suit, Larry. I thought it was that. Oh, I thought it was this weird. This it was this weird video game, no. and it was just about some <laughs> no. like really small guy trying to have sex with loads of girls. I never played it for the listeners, but I thought it was that. I didn't think it was Louis and Harry One Direction Yikes. gay I, yeah, fan okay. fiction. That's yeah. blown my mind. Which is like insane to me that I found out that this is still a thing. Like I looked on Twitter under the hashtag and there's literally people still posting about Larry. Like it's insane to me. Like these are like conspiracy theories from like yeah. 2010, dude. Like it's so I know, weird. I was like, going to say they've been over for a while. For years. I don't understand. And like these crazy fans, like they literally destroyed Harry and Louis's friendship because that was such an integral mm. part in the band breaking up. Because these fans were so like obsessive with like Louis and Harry being in a relationship, they Jesus ruined these Christ. dudes' lives, bro. Okay, like- <laughs> so I mean, I thought that was going to yeah. be sunnier climbs, but we've not we've gone we've gone really further down the rabbit hole here. Um, <laughs> can we briefly talk then before we reflect on this yeah. part, Helena, about this civil war going on within the D trans community? Because you said there's a lot of infighting within this community, let alone the trans community. You know, I've spoken to Aaron Kimberly, I've spoken to Debbie Hayes, and, and they get dogs abuse. And I tell people that these are trans people who get called transphobic. And a lot of you know my listeners and my friends don't really believe me. But you said there are some D trans people who criticize other D trans people for being straight as they see it as like a lesbian versus trans issue. That that sounds as again, completely bonkers. What is going on here? So I think like the main kind of divide is really between radical feminism and everybody else. For a long time, the main kind of like vector for criticizing trans ideology has been radical feminism. And I just know that I experienced a lot of blowback when I kind of started to separate myself from that and just kind of like, you know, I'm a curious person. It's not enough for me to just see things from one perspective anymore. I kind of did that when I was in the trans community and I don't want to do that again. So I've always just kind of been curious about things from multiple angles. And there's like a certain sect of the radical feminists who can be a little bit dogmatic as well. And I know that there have been detransitioners in the past who they just went Mm -hmm. very strongly in the direction of radical feminism. And yeah, that kind of like created a, a rift when I myself, but also a few other people kind of started especially male detransitioners kind of started to think about some of these issues in a bit of a different way in ways that are against Mm. like the radical feminist way of seeing things. So yeah, that has been a little bit of drama. And I know recently there's been a lot of drama because these radical feminists have been coming after like yeah, some of come the, after Mars. I've uh, had him on the show. He's great in the you know space. Yeah, they've been coming after Mars, which I think is just ridiculous. They're accusing Mars of encouraging yeah, kids to get genital surgeries, which is like that's not true at all. Like that's literally the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. So I just think that it's like you know I think there are people who their devotion is really towards their ideology. Like it's not so much towards actually like getting to the bottom of some of these issues and starting to change things. It's more they want their way of seeing things to prevail. And so I think that's where that's coming from, where they're just kind of trying to dominate the conversation and to attack people who are branching away from that. So I think that's where that comes from. But I think it's gotten better recently because there's just more people in the space who are saying things the way they see it, not caring if it upsets anybody else. 
And so I think that there's kind of a movement like moving away from that dogmatic stuff. Yeah, it feels like a vibe of everyone's wrong. And then there's the people in the middle just trying to figure everything out and not be extremists. But there we go. As a final question, Helena, before we move on to mental health chat, what has this advocacy journey taught you about yourself so far? Um, yeah, it's taught me that I think it's kind of revealed to me that I, I have kind of a a skill for I guess like yeah seeing past the bullshit and just like getting down to like some fundamental observations that people are finding very useful and so I've just grown to really appreciate that about myself my ability to be observant and to empathize and understand so it's really revealed that it's also revealed that I don't have stage fright which is really interesting because I'm like really anxious sometimes when I'm just like talking to people one-on-one but then it's like I can talk to a group of people and I just don't feel anything like I don't feel fear at all so that's also been kind of weird to understand about myself but yeah so it's taught me that it's taught me you know it's it's kind of like given me the ability to not be so afraid of like what other people think because I've just gotten so much backlash in just like the most ridiculous ways for some of the things that I've said that it's just made me realize that like I don't have to respect anybody's opinion if I don't respect that person. Like if it's not coming from somebody who I really care what they think about me, then I don't need to care. So that's been just like very liberating. Now when I get kind of like piled on, it's like I don't feel all that anxiety. Like, oh my God, like so many people are attacking me. I just kind of feel like like there's just like a bunch of like flies flying around. I'm just swatting away the flies. We've come to our final topic of conversation, Helena, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests if we have time. It's a general natter and chat about mental health. So firstly, how would you say your mental health is at the moment? It is on the up and up. Definitely, you know, I think everybody struggles with things. I think that there are things I will be struggling with for a long time. But um, yeah, just kind of how I was saying earlier, like my confidence has just really developed and my ability to regulate my emotions has really developed. So I definitely feel like I'm just... Like what age better and better were you when you became self-aware of your mental health for the first time and you realized the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? Ooh, um, that's an interesting way to put it because I was very aware mm-hmm. of like concepts like depression and concepts like eating disorders very early on. But I think I was just, I was very like immersed in them. And I think I started to be aware of it from like a more, I guess, um, like bird's eye view of like what kind of was like going on for me and actually, you know, like kind of analyzing that. I guess it was kind of a gradual process, but I think that really okay. started for me about two Can years Can you tell ago. me now then about the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? How did it go? And did it feel like a big burden or weight had been lifted off your shoulders and it was a really big thing to do or did it feel like something quite insignificant easy and normal to do uh hmm my first conversation that would probably have been (laughs) with somebody on tumblr and i think that was kind of like a commiserating thing like just talking about how everything sucked and stuff but i guess in the real world probably would have been with my mom at some point and i think it it kind of felt like a little bit desperate like I just really wanted like help and ultimately kind of was disappointed and so yeah I've kind of had a history of like oversharing just because I'm like so desperate like I used to do that a lot when I was younger I'm just so desperate for like someone to kind of like care and like intervene so yeah 
I have complicated feelings okay. about talking about my what mental triggers do you have in life that affect your mental health so it could be things people say to you it could be a sound it could be a sensation a book a film a play anything or have you not figured all of them out yet I'm definitely like noticing more because like a big part of my healing journey has just been being able to recognize like my emotions and like understand like when I'm feeling an emotion because I in the past I wouldn't really know what emotions I was feeling I would just like immediately resort to like getting really overwhelmed and like acting out um, without really kind of like stopping to think like okay what am I feeling right now so that's been a big thing but I'm still practicing that so I think there are still triggers that I haven't really come to identify and understand yet but um big ones for me are just um I guess feeling like like I'm not like other people I feel like kind of inferior to people very easily so like someone will talk about like their dating experience or something and then I'll like feel really inferior because I go back to that place of like mm. feeling bad about not having dated anyone in high school like I just kind of like I, I recede to that kind well, of like anxiety yeah right yeah I don't have it as much anymore but I used to really struggle with that but I still kind of struggle with just people talking about their experiences oh another one is like people talking about the fun they had in college I'm really disillusioned with the whole idea of college now. People be like, bro, like I remember in college, like we were so wasted and it was so fun, bro. And like internally, I'll be like, half of me is just like, that's freaking cringe. And then the other half will be like, oh my God, I never had that. Like I missed out on so much. And I'll just kind of like spiral about that. So yeah, anything that kind of makes me feel like I'm different than other people or like not as good as other people or not as like socially accepted as other people mm. that like makes Conversely me feel Conversely then, what sometimes. tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have worked for you and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? The most important things for me have been one... Just doing that emotional work, recognizing and understanding my emotions from like an emotional perspective. I know some people find they're more successful with understanding their thought patterns, but for me, that never was very helpful. So I've had a lot of success with, you know, there was this um, technique that I use on and off where it's like when you're feeling any kind of emotion or you can even do it daily, you sit down and you write, it's called writing fears and resentments. So you write like, I have fear that you know, this person doesn't like me. I have fear that they think that I'm annoying. I have fear that if people think I'm annoying, then I won't have friends. Like stream of consciousness, like write down like your fears and then also resentment. So you could be like, I resent this person because I fear that they don't appreciate me or something like that. So like, it kind of like just brings out and like puts into words these emotions that can often feel like very overwhelming and just bouncing around in your head. So that's been really helpful. There's a therapist who has written a book called It's Not Always Depression. Hilary Jacobs Hendel is her name. And that book was really helpful for me because it, it talks about depression from the perspective of recognizing your emotions. So that has been really helpful for me. And on the other hand, another really helpful thing for me has been like nutrition, because like as someone who struggled with an eating disorder before, the malnutrition that comes with that, and also the difficulty with controlling my eating behavior and like feeling really out of control and kind of like governed by my eating disorder, getting that under control from like a 
physiological perspective where like I don't binge eat anymore. You know, I'm eating like nutritious foods and not restricting myself and stuff. I think that has played a huge role in just like stabilizing me because when you're not eating well and when you're binge eating, which comes with like so much shame and like bad stuff, it can be really hard to get anywhere with mental health when you don't have something like as basic as eating. I've got one more question for you left, Helena. And it's a broad run as well. What more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds, all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it? Um, I think a big aspect of that is to not pathologize it as much. Like I feel like it's kind of become normal in our society to view struggles, hardship, adversity, emotions as sign of like a mental illness. Yeah, I've grown to like really disagree with that. And I think that for people who are like me, where it's like you get really into like the mental health stuff, I think that can serve as a distraction from actually kind of connecting with yourself and understanding yourself and moving forward. And I think, you know, for people who are kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum where they don't really want to get into that mental health stuff, like that can cause them to avoid really talking about it because they don't want to be seen as someone who's using these mental health labels and like has a mental illness and stuff like that. Just getting away from that and returning to understanding like what are things that humans struggle with? What are aspects of the human condition that are just hard what kinds of things do human beings struggle with like relationships and self-esteem and stuff like that just like normalizing that and also a lot of people would benefit from like understanding emotions better and that just comes from my personal experience and when I talk to a lot of people it's like when they're super into like the mental health space, it's like they're really disconnected from their emotions where it's like they can say, I have depression or I have this disorder, but it's like they can't identify what they're feeling, which I think that being able to identify what you're feeling gives you so much information about like how to respond to that and how to actually like address that emotion and like heal that emotion so that you can begin to become a more happy person. That's one thing. And the last thing that I will say is that I think that the mental health world in general, I think should have less focus on treating symptoms or bad things and more of like an idea of how do people feel good? Like what are the things in life that enable people to feel good instead of focusing on just fixing the bad? So like, you know, relationships, like having close trusting relationships are necessary to feeling good. A lot of people, they won't have those relationships and thus they will struggle emotionally. And that will be called like a mental illness on that person's part when like, no, like they just don't have strong trusting relationships. Like that's not a problem with their brain. That's a problem with this phase of life that they're going through where they don't have strong relationships. So I think that there needs to be kind of a shift towards understanding like what do human beings in general need to feel good? Uh, this and has how been do we help a great there? conversation, an educational conversation for me. At times, a horrifying conversation for me. But thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking <laughs> to me. Thank you for having me. This was really great. I love talking about mental health and stuff. And I hope that listeners learn some things and, and have some things that they might want to look into more. <laughs> 
Well, that's all we've got time for in this episode of the Just Checking Podcast. I want to say a massive thank you to Helena for being my special guest on this episode and for letting me check in with her. She's a bit of a celeb now in the online world. She's gone on Megan Downs' podcast. She's gone on Bridget, Bridget Festices. So I'm pretty blessed that she decided to come on my small little podcast in the UK. I'll chuck some links to where you can follow Helena on social media if you want to, but be aware her feed can get pretty trolled at times, so you have been warned. As always, thank you to all the vendors who've tuned into this episode. If you've liked what you've heard, give it a share on social media. You can really help us out by giving us a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts. I haven't had one in absolutely ages, so please, guys, if you can, help me out with the algorithms and drop me a review. If you like what we're doing at Vent and want to support us further, consider supporting our Patreon. That's at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. Or you can visit our GoFundMe. That link is in all our channels. Before we go, I just want to also say a massive thank you to everyone who came to the last Just Checking In Live. It went absolutely amazing. Big thanks to Isla Rico again. Big thanks to Pete Anderson. It was great to see so many of you podcast guests there and people who've written for Vent and just people who've supported Vent in general. Um, the pictures are on the Facebook page for Vent, so you can download them and share them on social media as well. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to Vent. Vent.